Greetings. Welcome to Out of the Margins podcast. This is Manuel Arciniegas, and I'm your host and director of the Andrews Family Fund. Recorded in September of 2020, we're delighted to share with you part two of our Out of the Margins podcast. Our speakers are Pastor Michael McBride from the Live Free Campaign, Tavon Bogan from Advanced Peace, Zachary Norris from the Ella Baker Center, and Jenny Arwade from Communities United. We hope you enjoy the conversation. I think the ability to sit with the pain is actually part of the the work. And I think that what I've seen in the places where I've been moving, where there are people who have made it a life and built their identity around their privilege and ability to bypass Black pain, Indigenous suffering, this is a, a really interesting time to think about how I've been seeing uprisings where full flanks are what we see as young progressive white folks, for example, and they're out there, right, in the streets, and everyone's asking the question, what does it mean to be white and really stand for social justice, for anti-blackness? What do I need to read? How do we show up for the organizing part of this? And it seems like a new opportunity and yet I hear Devon that your elders are like, we've been here. I'm also holding that alongside the real mental grief and trauma of young people who are like now having to learn to say, I want to get my education and I'm going to step into a building where my life is at stake in another way. And, and their resources are not in those buildings to, to protect me, to protect my teachers, to protect my family when I come home. And all the different kind of tensions I've heard in that conversation, too. I've seen children, really young children now, holding almost like, what does it mean to grow up in an apocalyptic environment? I'm thinking about the level of care in relationships and interactions that this is inviting from all of us and what we can draw from in Black movements, in Indigenous cultures, and local, really collectively-based relationships that y'all have been building and strengthening for a long time. I'm curious, Jenny, you started your introduction holding hope in the midst of grief. And so I'm just curious, what's your response to some of what Pastor Mike and Savon are saying and how you're moving in this season and what you're seeing amongst the organizers in your community? So I think that when I really just want to appreciate um, Devon and Pastor Mike for sharing the anger of our elders, our young people exist in community with elders, right? And so the pain that's intergenerational that exists in our homes and our communities, um, it's real and it's painful. This work that we're all in, it's again, holding that the reality of that pain and, and anger at the same time as we're going all in, right, to really put forth a different vision again for what healing can really look like in our communities. It is the incredibly um, hard work, and it's not, not also not kind of where 
we're all at at every moment, right? All folks in our communities are at different places at different times, dealing with different levels of grief and trauma. And so we acknowledge that. What I was going to also share and building on what Pastor Mike was saying and also what Zach was saying earlier, why should it be considered a radical idea to defund police? Why should it be considered a radical idea to invest in public health approaches to healing, to addressing root causes? Like on what planet is that actually a radical idea? Like all evidence points in that direction. You know, the amazing work that Devon does in Advanced Peace, that Pastor Mike does, that Zach does, that folks across the country do. Like, why is there any question, right? That that is the way to go, the way that produces results, but the way that is actually honoring our communities, our history of pain and suffering and the need for healing in our communities. So. I think that amidst all of this pain and suffering and leading towards hope is the fact that these should no longer be considered radical ideas and that it's our moral imperative to put these forth as the absolute moral imperative of what our society needs to look like today. And what we're asking for is not new. Someone asked me, you know, don't you feel like the demand to defund the police is is like just an expression of youthful idealism run amok. And I said, do you realize for 300 years, Black folk have been asking for the same thing <laughs> in different ways? We've been asking for the police to stop killing us for 300 years. We've been asking for our fair share for 300 years. It's been called defund the police. Dr. King, during the Civil Rights Movement, they talked about the access to the vote access to public accommodations, and then an economic vision for justice into militarism, into economic exploitation, into racism, reconstruction, the same exact demands, right, at the end of slavery. And can't nobody say during slavery, Black folk weren't asking for an end to violence and into their exploitation. I just think that it's so disingenuous to to put the burden on young people to have to recreate every generation a new way of saying the same thing folks have been asking for 300 years and imagine the trauma that we are unleashing on young people to have to be the liberators of their own generation from adults who should have the historical memory and certainly the current power to actually take that foot off of the neck of their families and their friends and their neighborhoods and their communities and so I think when we talk about the invest conversation, it can't be disconnected from the centuries-long struggle of every generation, as Franz Fanon said, to find their mission and interpret it for their current moment and seek to fulfill it. This is, I think, the, the great burden that I regret young people have to deal with. And on a, a, a day when we are still remembering the six-year anniversary of the Ferguson uprising, personally for me, I know because I was there, that was nothing but Black young people literally on the streets putting their life in harm's way because they were tired of their whole existence being criminalized to the point where you could kill an individual and leave him on the street for four and a half hours in the hot sun around babies and moms and children with no accountability. I mean, what does that say? You talk about healing. We talk about healing our young people. At times, I'm ashamed to call myself a Black leader 
because how can you be a leader in this moment and not stop the hurting happening to your people? This, for me, I think is has to be an important reckoning uh, of sorts for all of us, whether you're an elected official, faith leader, nonprofit leader, activist, organizer, uh, philanthropist. We all have such a huge responsibility to make this be the last generation that has to deal with some of these giants that our parents have been fighting for centuries at a time. Mr. Mike, for us to do that, just taking into account what Javon said around the way this insidious system has continues to persistently recreate itself, just consolidate and calcify itself, and every generation is still rewording the same demands. I'm just curious, what do y'all think still is needed, continues to be integral? Have you seen any practices or ways that y'all think has been especially effective to do precisely this interruption that Pastor Mike is talking about? Is there anything you would want your comrades listening to really embrace? Earlier, Pastor Mike talked about, let's cut, let's sift through the veil that, and focus on the problem of the progressive practices and rhetorics that are really enabling white supremacy, right? What else have you guys seen that has been really like particularly powerful and successful at interrupting? And do you believe we can get to that change in this lifetime? in the next five years, in the next year. Just curious, what's it going to take? I'm one who believes we have to be less moderate and we have to be much more clear about things like abolition. I mean, you started our conversation talking about that. We've got to demand the reparations that we've been moderately demanding. I think, I'll just leave it there. I, I don't think we can any longer be moderate and ask for these small progressions of of opportunities. I think we've got to say this is what we demand and we want to hold high right now. I just think we've got to be less moderate about our expectations and our demands, period. Often you get people saying, that's great. And tell me how you think you're gonna do that. So one of the myths is it's not possible. It's not feasible. It's not actionable. I'm curious from you or, or, or Zach or others who've actually pushed transformations, policy changes that were at once thought impossible. What do you guys think about myth busting on that level and the idea that what they won't just ask for Reparations is impossible. Typically, I talk about Devon Bogan and Pastor Mike's work in terms of violence prevention and just that this knowledge that when you actually invest in young people, when you look to them as solution, you actually dramatically decrease violence and increase opportunity. Since they're both on the call, um, I'm not going to speak for their work. But what I will say is I think that there's a need for infrastructure and to be able to visibilize the kind of solutions we want. And when it came down to fossil fuels, even though there are still some climate change deniers, 99.9% of scientists agree and the whole world agrees. And so now we've set an intention. We've said, okay, fossil fuels are a thing of the past and here's the pathway forward. And there are visible examples of what that path looks like. And so 
we created Restore Oakland at the Ella Baker Center with the idea that we wanted to be one of the first solar panels around community safety, that we wanted to create this infrastructure, this 18,000 square foot building that really demonstrates that when you invest in young people, when you create a space for restorative justice and transformative justice, when you provide good job opportunities, when you help to keep people in their homes, those are the things that actually make communities safe. And all of that came from the vision of formerly incarcerated folks, currently incarcerated folks, survivors of crime, creating this national community-driven research uh, report called Who Pays the True Cost of Incarceration on Families. And so it really was just bringing to the, together the wisdom of community members themselves to say, this is what we believe creates community and we're trying to create a visual aid for that solution. So I think that that is one of the things that is necessary to move us from where we are now to where we want to be is really pushing back against centuries and media accounts and law and order and all of these shows that present a particular vision of safety that we know has not made our community safe. Yeah, I'll just say, I think what we need are better lawmakers. <laughs> because the problem is not the community's lack of imagination. The problem is the feckless governance of lawmakers. This idea that what we're asking for is so hard to implement through governance is is a, a challenge for the mediocrity that we have in politicians who have to raise so much capital in order to win an election that they, as a function of getting elected, are usually bought off by the very forces that we are really having to fight against to have this kind of reinvestment of our tax base into the communities most impacted. I think one thing that we need to continue to do is to be unrelenting on progressive lawmakers, regardless of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, uh, the rhetoric that comes out of their mouth. We must follow their votes. We must bring forward policy proposals that are grounded and rooted in history. Let's not be obtuse in our analysis around policymaking. Read the Kerner Commission. Let's just go back 50 years and start there. It's like there's 50 years ago, they told us what to do. The Movement for Black Lives has put forward an amazing platform that is very expansive. The Breathe Act just came forward. If you want to support reparations, HR 40 is a bill right now going through Congress to put the study together to, to, to create the reparations conversation. At every level, we must make local, state, and federal elected officials unelectable if they do not have a policy framework that is historic and grounded in the best thinking of our current movement and efforts, because I do think some of this is about elected officials being obtuse, and they gaslight all of us to make us think that our demands are just so radical, when in reality, they are not radical. <laughs> This idea that everyone should have food, housing, clothes, and safety is not a radical proposal, and it is a wicked luxury for an elected official to claim that these are out of our reach. It is not out of our reach, and my prayer is that all of us locally will hold our elected officials 
to the fire with proposals. Print these proposals out. Every meeting you show up and you ask them, what part of this are you working on? What part of the Office of Life Prevention are you working on? What part of the, the Breathe Act are you working on? What part of the Movement for Black Lives platform are you working on? What part of the Defund the Police? What Just keep asking them the same questions over and over again so we are not distracted to the point of paralysis. And I would just add a couple of things. So one, I think investing in broad-based relationships, right? Whether through our faith institutions, our community work and whatnot, even just hearing again, Devon speak about your father, it brought me back to my father passed away 12 years ago. Growing up, I never understood this intense anger that he carried with him. And it wasn't until his last month of his life that I actually came to really understand really what that anger meant and where it came from. What we experience in our own homes is absolutely connected to what we experience in our community and how we work together to co collectively advance our vision for what our communities will look like. I think that human connection, again, during the pandemic, we've all felt, you know, having to be on Zoom all the time and be more isolated. And there's absolutely no replacement in our movements and our organizing work to just the human connection that comes through the work. Also building on what Pat Pastor Mike said about what will we accept? What will we consider victory at the end of the day? I think that that fundamentally has changed over the years and needs to change further. CPS, just after digging in their heels, Chicago Public Schools, they agreed to slash, you know, $15 million from the police budget. And you know what? 10 years ago, we might have thought, wow, like that's an amazing thing, $15 million. And I have to say that today I'm like, that is not enough. It is not enough. I guess the last piece is, Manuela, to your point of how we get there again, never losing track of the fact that this is not about ideas only, it's about power. And also, as we think about, again, the solutions, for example, in Chicago, young people are leading efforts on mental health, right, and reinvestment, not in clinical approaches, right, that rely on medicalization, that rely on continued institutionalization, right, of families, but that really supports leadership development, that supports community building, that supports building power and changing systems as actually what's key to mental health. Food is key to mental health, right? Secure housing is key to mental health. And so all of the work, we have to move away from just like treating trauma to really addressing again these root causes and investing in the leadership of young people to create this change. Similarly with housing, everything goes back to local leadership. Survivors in Chicago advancing work around housing, survivors of domestic violence who are able to preserve housing and by creating affordable housing are able to actually address situations of domestic violence without using the criminal justice system. It's not a big, huge program, right? It's through addressing basic needs, right? I and mean, ensuring economic security of families to be able to have options that should be at everyone's disposal. I just want to lift up, Jenny, that you titled the report $3.4 trillion mistake and that that co-authored report that you did, I think, hits it right on the head in terms of that uh, the scale of our ambition, right? $3.4 trillion is the cost of incarceration. So if we want to start with any number, let's start, you know, up there. And I agree, Pastor Mike, like even the Kerner Commission report, they, it's funny because I heard 
in the writing of that, they were citing a previous report and being like, this is just like the 1919 or the 1918 reports, just every 40 years, here we are again. And the thing I've been saying to try to bring it together is like, the nation was founded on the idea that the only good Indian is a dead Indian as they were doing their westward expansion. And I think what we have now is a governance that believes that the only good government is a death government, a government that is funding the things that accelerate our morbidity and mortality and ensure our dependence and that we have to go to school or go to work to serve the interests, but not really funding our life and liberation and our opportunity. And so I think we can do much, much better than that. And, and Manuel, yeah. let me just add this real quickly. Um, you know, when we, as an example of be less moderate, in real time, we're, we're talking about defund, reimagine, et cetera, et cetera. Let's do all of those things and let's make sure that the investments we make in the healthier alternatives are at the level of the investments we were making in defense, in policing, et cetera. Because I'm tired of being judged or compared with an orange and I'm an apple. I've got a $1.2 million budget in Richmond. Law enforcement has a $68 million budget in Richmond. You want to say, well, who's more effective? You can't answer that until you make sure I'm at par equitable to the other side of that, that coin. So that's what I mean. We've got to make sure that the funding or whatever we're doing differently meets the healthier side at the same level of investment as we were funding stuff that's proven not to work. Savone is so right, right? So. $68 million, let's just cut that in half, right? Let's give Office of Neighborhood Safety $34 million, and let's give the police department $34 million, and let's just see, right, who can have better outcomes as it relates to the use of our tax dollars. In California, to the HEROES Act, we did this for all 50 states, but we've been uh, sharing this with the Oakland City Council, who have been woefully unimaginative and timid in their response. They take terrible votes, but they call themselves the Equity Caucus. This is black and brown people who claim to fight and champion black people, but can't vote in ways that demonstrate their commitment, right? This is an epidemic all across the country. But $150 million could buy in Oakland 2,739 gun violence prevention outreach workers, 205 crisis teams, 13,000 transitional jobs for people leaving incarceration. You cannot tell me that $150 million of that kind of investment in Oakland would not cut crime, would not beautify East Oakland, West Oakland, would not put a, a turn the faucet off on the addiction and the mental anguish that people are turning to to medicate themselves from the pain and the isolation and the degradation they feel. But we have to make these public arguments in ways that are, to Devon's point, not asking for small pennies. We have to be willing to have a budget conversation at the local level that is unrelenting and shame the elected officials who continue to make it appear like we are asking for something that is beyond their reach. A budget is decided every year or every two years at the most our fights have to turn to some budget conversations that can quantify 
how we would spend this money differently and get better results. It changed the game and it would unveil all these fallacies that this system mm. built upon. And that, that's the biggest fear. That's right. Right <laughs> on, y'all. And so you laid the groundwork for my last question, y'all. And it's, what are we not going to do <laughs> in this season, right? You laid out a very crystal clear vision. You grounded it in the fact that it is a generational vision. It's, this is not a new moment. The call to divest from harmful practices and systems from police, which were reincarnations of slave patrols from, this is not a new demand. So what is it that you want to say to your fellow movement partners, your fellow nonprofit organizations, the progressives who are, who claim to be closer, closer to here than there around the people's agenda for liberation and social justice? What do you want to say to philanthropy? about what do they need to do? What do I need to do? What do we need to do? What are we not going to do in this season if we are truly to invest in young people and interrupt, interrupt in this generation these things that our, our ancestors have been fighting for <laughs> forever? What do you want to say about what we need to do and what are we not going to do? I'll say pick a side. Pick a side put a stake in the ground and invest in it the same way the Koch brothers have invested in their vision of the criminalization, the profiteering off of incarceration. Manuela is a shining light in a, in a very uneven sector <laughs> because to, to be moving a foundation towards the abolitionist framework as a long-term vision is I think a, an anomaly and we need progressive philanthropy, so-called progressive philanthropy to pick a side and stay on that side. Even when the political winds shift, when the board members who are on philanthropy have their political interests kind of put into some vulnerable spaces, stay the course. I know some philanthropy folks who told me that when Donald Trump became the president, they, their board told them they couldn't invest in, gun violence prevention. They couldn't invest in racial justice. They couldn't invest in Black Lives Matter type efforts because they didn't want to be in the crosshairs of Donald Trump. Like that kind of allyship means you don't need any enemies, right? <laughs> and so that's what I would say to philanthropy. Pick a side. What's the most radical thing philanthropy can do? You may not go to jail because you shut down a freeway. You may not have to lead a protest. You may not have to do civil disobedience, but can you fight this fight in the boardroom with your program officers, with your foundation presidents? Can you ensure that the, the community members on the ground are getting the resources they need? Philanthropy cannot replace public budget, but they can catalyze imagination and innovation. And that's what I think philanthropy has to do. Absolutely. <laughs> Pick a side and stay on your side. <laughs> What, about, what do other folks think? I would just add to that. Obviously, I agree with that. It was beautifully said. I think stop investing in single issues, invest in leadership, invest in the leadership of young people and elders in our communities. And also when the pandemic first started, I was getting all these you know, emails from philanthropy saying, oh, we're not requiring any reporting for a couple months. We want you to be able to do your job. We want you to be out there on the front lines. Well, why is that 
not the norm? Why is that not the standard, right? Because every, as horrific as those months have been, it's like I got to focus 100% on doing my work in the community. And that rapidly changed after maybe two months. It's okay, got to turn out this grant report at midnight. You got to do this, got to do that. And those things, they may seem small, but they make an enormous difference in terms of how we're able to actually spend our time in our communities with our staff. So these practices really need to dramatically shift for the long term. I want to echo what Jenny was just saying by saying that, like, this is a pandemic. It is novel, but structural racism and patriarchy and the things we're talking about are actually endemic uh, to our society. They have always been with the United States, and we are always fighting and doing this work. So couldn't echo uh, more or underscore more that push to just ask for some capacity and support long term, as Pastor Mike said. Long term, like it, it took us nearly a decade to fight a campaign that resulted in the closure of five youth prisons across the state of California. But thankfully, we did have some funders who were committed to us over that long haul. And guess what? Now the governor is saying we want to close the last three youth prisons. When you're going against the grain in, in the ways that the folks on this call are, it, it's going to take some time but I think it's a, a worthy investment. Just look at what the, the right has been successful in doing over the past 40, 50 years. They came up with a 40, 50 year plan and they have executed on it in ways that if we had funders who were not just saying, oh, we support healthcare, but no, we're gonna support universal healthcare starting in the 1980s, we might have universal healthcare right now. So those are some examples for me of like, set an intention and be with us for the long haul. I'm so glad you asked this question. And I got to lift, lift you up and AFF up as well, because there have been a lot of philanthropic partners who've, who've put out statements about why Black Lives Matter and how they're going to fund Black-led organizations, people of color-led organizations. And I think all that's great. But I've been funded by some Black-led philanthropy who've said the same thing. And I can tell you, AFF, you're the only one that's actually done anything that I know about. And I don't know, I don't know if anyone else is on this call has had that very similar experience. And I, I just find that to be interesting. So I will just say, don't be scared. I mean, you've heard from my, my colleagues here, go long-term, go long, go big, go deep, uh, but don't be scared and do some self-reflection. Uh, I mean, again, let's look at who our boards are made up. Of. And do you have folks on your board that look like the folks you fund? This is a conversation for the broader space of philanthropy, because I think that's another big issue of why we get what we get and why we are where we are, is because even our most progressive philanthropies don't look like the communities they fund. And I think we've got to do something uh, about that philanthropy, because when we do something about that, we become one with the communities we fund. Yeah, another way of saying that is the same people that got us into this mess will not get us out of this mess. <laughs> so a lot of these politicians are looking to the same kind of strategies and the same 
supposed guardians of community safety that have for years and decades really been entrenched interest in, in protecting the status quo, not undoing it. And so we need to understand that. Thank you all for your wisdom and infinite generosity. The knowledge that the brilliance that you all bring has been hard earned <laughs> and hard polished out there doing the work every day. And I, I am absolutely grateful for you to take the time out today in the midst of all the work you all are holding and the complexities of being the humans in the work that you're doing. I really just want to thank you for that. We have heard you loud and clear, and we have our own reflection and continued improvement work to do as a fund, as a funder, as a partner in crime to really bring about real change in this lifetime for our young people and our communities. I'm wondering if you want to close with a parting, uplifting message for whoever you think is out there that needs to hear it today, whether that's your colleague, your, the young person you work for, your father. <laughs> Who out there you think needs to hear this message? I want to just open up space to, to close with that offering, and thank you for being with us. One of the things that I'd like to say, Manuela, um, is that these are those kinds of moments and opportunities. This opportunity you've created here for us to, to join you in this conversation, it gives me a great deal of hope. And it, and it allows me to go back to folks like my father and say, it's some bad, bad people out there working on some good, good stuff. So keep the hope and keep the faith. So this gives me a great deal of hope and it inspires me just to listen and hear and to be in this moment in this movement with you all. Thank you, Devon. Yeah, I'll just say hopelessness is as deadly as a bullet. So whatever you do, do not lose your hope. Remember that we are an extension of a struggle that predates us for centuries, if not millennia. And the past the baton, once you've ran with it for a little while, but whatever you do, don't die with the baton in your hand. We have to continue to see our work across generation, across difference. Marshall Falk was on a program yesterday and he said something so powerful, he said, we can have differences, but we cannot be divided. And so may our differences not be the reason why we have divisions, but may our differences be the complementary things that give us the strength we need for an expanded imagination and a multiplicity of tactics, tools, and approaches for the purposes of liberation. So God bless everyone. And Willa, you know, I'm your number one fan, girl. Keep on winning and leading. <laughs> We are really trying to push forward a vision of community safety. Everybody lives in the neighborhood. You live somewhere. And that is a place where we can be struggling for a different vision of safety that is, is rooted in the knowledge that we keep us safe rather than fall into this lie that this dictator, wannabe dictator president is putting forward that he keeps us safe that we know is a lie. We think it's an opportunity to really get out there and put forward that collective vision of safety and hopefully get out there and educate people about the need to, to vote and participate and, and move forward that vision concretely. We'll definitely help in that effort. So thanks, Zach. 
Um, I think all I would add is just now is you know, the moment, as it always is, to double and triple down our efforts amidst all these challenges. To the point Zach made earlier about the closure of youth prisons, our governor in Illinois just announced the closure of the final five um, youth prisons in Illinois. And there is enormous opportunity in this time yeah, to be able to again, build broadly, build deeply, and to really advance what we know um, is truly rooted in healing and justice for our communities. And the roles, there's a role for everybody to play in that work that's led by communities directly impacted. I also just wanna echo what Devon and others said, just really sharing love and appreciation for Manuela as really a beautiful leader in this struggle. And, and one of the last things that, um, that Caleb, the young person I had the honor of working with, was working on was his statement and video for the Visionary Youth Freedom Fund. And what a beautiful opportunity, right, for young people across this country to be able to share directly in their words, right, what is their vision for youth freedom and what is their call to action for justice. And so I just wanna thank everyone on this call with love and appreciation for all of you, all that you do and everyone listening as well. Thank you so much, everyone. Those were the powerful leaders of our nation, Zach Norris with the Ella Baker Center, Jenny Arwadi with Communities United, Devon Bogan with Advanced Peace, and Pastor Mike McBride with Live Free and The Way Church. We are honored and blessed by your wisdom. May your visions become manifest swiftly, full of all the love, the joy, and the light that they embody in your communities and for all of us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Stay blessed, everyone. And thank you for listening to Out of the Margin. Peace. Losing all humanity, they fire at our family. Our flow will be the remedy. Cause water got no enemy. Now I ain't commit no felony. What's that issue telling me? You don't know the man I plan to be. Gotta go home to my family.